How many of you are in charge of making product decisions at work? Good, okay, a lot of them. Okay, who, um, who is 100% confident, or even like really confident, that the, that the decisions that they're making are like really good, like really solid, like you're doing a great job? Anyone? Anyone? There's gotta be somebody. Oh, we have one, excellent. Okay, get out. This is not for you. Yes, I always get one. <laughs> Sorry, you can stay. But this is really, this is for the rest of us, all right? What I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna share a technique um, that is going to help you, I hope, make better decisions. And we're going to um, teach you how to figure out what terribly dangerous ideas you have in your head about your product that are the most likely to destroy your company. Okay, everybody ready? Okay, also, just so you know, um, I know there's some folks playing at home um, on the live stream. Get yourself something to write with and something to write on so that you are prepared for the activity later. In case you're wondering who the hell I am, um, I am Matt. Uh, I'm Laura. I wrote a book called UX for Lean Startups. I've been designing and building products for about 20 years, and um, I've worked with a lot of product teams, and I've seen a lot of products fail, and I've seen some succeed, probably fewer of the latter than the former. And the, what I think is the most important thing is that I've done a lot of work studying the difference between those that succeed and those that fail. And um, I want to introduce you to the past. Uh, in the past, this is how we built stuff. It's going to look really familiar to a lot of you. Um, it's a normal user-centered waterfall design process. It has been used to create a lot of products in the past. Um, in Waterfall, you know, as you know, you do some user research, if you're really lucky. Um, you define, you, you know, come up with some ideas for how you, might, how you might fix people's problems, you create some wireframes, you maybe iterate, you test it, and then you throw it all over the wall to engineering. And um, this is the part where I'm going to say something that will likely not get me invited back next year. This is not a terrible process. It's not. It's developed a lot of really good products. A lot of, I did it for a lot of years. A lot of successful companies make products this way. There's a problem with it. problem with it is that um, it can make really, really usable products that are not the least bit useful. <laughs> um, like, you get to the end of the process and you find out that just nobody's interested in what you're building, and you know, you've, you've solved a problem, but you haven't solved the problem. And the worst part of it is that you find this out, you find out that nobody wants your product after it's already been built, and you're out of money. And in this case, and in a lot of cases, that takes a really long time. Here's an example. Um, anybody remember WebVan? Anybody around in the 90s? Yay! <laughs> so for those of you who weren't around in the 90s, sort of famously failed. Um, but WebVan didn't fail because of usability. It didn't fail because, you know, they, they couldn't build a website didn't fail because you know, they couldn't ship people groceries. It, it didn't fail even because they couldn't build out an enormous, massive, scalable infrastructure for shipping groceries all over the country. In fact, that's probably why they failed, right? The fact is they just couldn't get enough people at that time in history to order their groceries in order to support them. And the bigger problem, the much bigger problem, was that they didn't fail until they had lost $400 million. That's starting to be real money. 
So how could they have done it instead? How could they have avoided this? Right? Well, they could have done it this way, right? If this book had existed in the 90s, which it didn't, because I think Eric was probably in high school at the time. They could have figured out earlier that people didn't need their solution to that particular problem. Right? Now, you've probably heard a lot of stuff about Lean Startup, and unless you've heard it here, or from Eric, or from maybe one of the books in the Lean series, I just want to very quickly review some of the myths. You've probably seen these before. These are not Lean Startup, right? It's not about spending no money. It's not about releasing crap. It's not about throwing stuff against the wall and seeing if it sticks. These are all things that people did before. These are all things that people in the 90s did, except that now they yell pivot when they do it, right? Ooh, MVP. No, that's just a crappy product. You've confused. You've, you've been confused. Doing these things doesn't make you lean. Doing these things makes you fail. And again, here is a slide that you will have seen, but it bears repeating that it's about learning. Lean is actually about learning every step of the way, challenging your assumptions, recognizing what your assumptions are, and testing them rigorously, learning whether or not you are wrong as early as possible. Why is it better? It's better because we find out that we are wrong before we spend $400 million. Hopefully, like $399 million earlier. So we're going to get to the activity very quickly. But I want to back up just for a second to be incredibly pedantic. Um, what is an assumption? An assumption, obviously, is just something that we believe to be true, generally with absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Right? So it's something we take for granted. If you're building a house, you might take for granted that the Earth is not going to open up and swallow that house whole. Except that might be something that you would actually want to test before building the house, say, over an abandoned mine. Right? These are not things that it is OK to make. There are things in your product development process that are not OK to make assumptions about without trying to invalidate them. And there are three basic types of assumptions that we see people make all the time. People make assumptions about the product, they make assumptions about their solution, and they make assumptions about their implementation of the solution. All right? We, we make assumptions that, that there is a market that, that has this problem that we're trying to solve. We make, we make assumptions that our way of solving it is the right one, and we make assumptions that we can build and deliver that solution and make some money on it before we run out of money. And in fact, unsuccessful companies make key assumptions about all of these things. They just assume, oh, of course there's a problem for that. I have that problem. Everybody has that problem. Right? Of course I have the right solution. What other solution could there possibly be? How hard could it be to implement that? What could possibly go wrong? These are all incredibly dangerous. So um, I think it's time for a bizarre example. Do we all agree? It's been like minutes. There has not been a bizarre example yet. Let's do that. Um, now, for those of you who haven't heard of it, I want to introduce you to a brand new product. It is called Jobs for Pets, and it is the premier job site for pets. That's right. If you have a bored border collie sitting around the house, you monetize that mutt with Jobs for Pets. 
It's monster for dogs. It's TaskRabbit for actual rabbits. It's also not actually a thing, obviously. Um, it's an example that I use in all of my talks, and a lot of you have heard of it before. Uh, and if you're wondering why I use this one, other than that I own the domain jobs for pets, um, it's because I talk to a lot of startups, and I like to have an example that is both immediately obvious, like you know what this is, right? It's like a job marketplace for pets. Um, it's immediately obvious, and it's also so stupid that nobody in the audience is actually building it. That's harder than it sounds, all right? Um, so Jobs for Pets has a lot of assumptions based into it. I know that comes as a surprise because it seems like such an obviously great idea. There are some assumptions. Let's look at them. There is an assumption that people who own pets are upset by the cost or have some sort of monetary needs, right? That's a problem assumption. You're assuming that there's a group of people out there that we will call pet owners who are upset about the cost of owning pets. And if you are wrong about this problem, then it does not matter how wonderful your solution is or how well you execute on it. Nobody will buy your damn product because no, it will not solve a problem for anybody. An assumption like, the right way to solve the pet cost problem is to employ pets is a solution assumption. You are assuming that getting a job for a pet is the best way to solve this problem, that it is totally reasonable and not at all insane, and that the best way to solve this problem that you have identified is to create a marketplace for pet jobs, right? Remember, a problem can have a lot of solutions. Some solutions are better than others. The example I always like to give here is, if I were to ask people if they wanted to lose 20 pounds, a lot of people would say yes. If I said that I could make that happen very quickly by cutting off one of their legs, most of them would say no. Good problem identification, terrible solution ass assumption, right? And if you're wrong about your solution, if you're wrong that getting jobs for pets is the right way to solve this, this pet cost problem, then again, it doesn't matter how bad the problem is, people will find another way to solve it. An assumption like pets can work is an implementation assumption. It's addressing the feasibility of your solution. For example, if your implementation relies on something like warp speed travel or the employability of pets, that's a risky assumption. You're going to want to validate that or invalidate it before you base your entire company on it. And if you're wrong about the feasibility of the implementation, it doesn't matter if it's the best solution to the worst problem, if you can't solve it, you're out of business. And do remember here, I am not, when I talk about implementation, I'm not just talking about building a website or a mobile app. I'm not talking about just the technology crap. Um, I'm talking about the feasibility of you know, building a community or a marketplace or an audience, depending on what your product requires. Implementation is more than just technology. I know I can build a website that connects pet owners to other pet owners, I can probably even build a marketplace. Can I teach a border collie to type? Eh, probably not. So let's take an actual example, no pets involved. Now, to be clear, I have no idea if Dropbox went through this exercise of figuring this out explicitly, but they have a really good product for a really hard problem. Um, you know, they have a good solution for it, and the implementation's pretty solid, so obviously they validated all of these issues, all right? So what is the problem risk for a company like Dropbox? Not right now. Think back to the dark ages before Dropbox existed. What was the problem risk? This is not a trick question. Anyone? Your 
that is that would certainly be a problem. That is, but so that is a problem for them, but it's not the problem that they are solving. It's interesting. That's more of a solution assumption, but it's a it's a it's a very good solution assumption. So the problem was that they had to make sure that there were a large number of people who had a very specific problem. The very specific problem was that they had multiple devices where they wanted to access the same files. Right? That's the problem that they solve. Now, before you go, yeah, of course people have that problem. That's obvious. It's absolutely completely obvious. Everybody knows that. Think about a time or place where that wouldn't be true. So for example, there are lots of um, once upon a time, for example, people only had one device, right? Or they had a computer at work and a computer at home, and they didn't share files because they actually went home and stopped working. Or if they work mostly on their smartphone, or they work mostly in the cloud, these are not serious. The thing that Dropbox solves, those are not serious problems for those folks, right? There had to be enough people with this very specific problem to validate this problem. So these were the problem assumptions that had to be true for Dropbox to succeed. So solution assumptions. Again, thinking back to the beginning, what's the solution risk for Dropbox? Once you know that people have multiple devices, they want to access the same stuff. So you have, to, you have to validate whether or not people are, for example, willing to download something in multiple places. Right? This is not something that you can take for granted. This was not something that was necessarily typical that you were going to download clients on multiple different platforms in order to share these files. This was a solution assumption. When you think about the real differentiator for Dropbox, too, it was that simple drag and drop interface that you know, downloading a client gave to people. right? And a lot of companies existed, as you pointed out, that did the exact same thing, that solved the exact same problem with a different solution. But they had a different solution assumption, and they were not as successful. There's also the other big solution assumption for Dropbox was the trust issue. Why am I going to trust all of my important documents to this weird startup? This was a big thing that they had to overcome. So again, these are the solution assumptions, and you can tell how they are different than the, than the product or the problem assumptions. Last one, let's look at the implementation assumptions. Very quickly, they had a really interesting challenge. They got to sync files across multiple devices and operating systems quickly and accurately and safely enough to make customers happy. And unlike many products where the implementation details might, again, be no harder than building an iOS app, this is a non-trivial task. So as with the other assumptions, if they hadn't been able to do this, if they hadn't been able to execute this seamlessly across all platforms, eventually, you don't have to start at the very biggest, but if they hadn't been able to do this, it would have been a much less successful product. These are the implementation assumptions. Can we implement it? So now is when you get to break out your kits. I don't know if everybody got a kit. Um, if you didn't, I will tell you what is in it. There are Sharpies and sticky notes, because I am trained as a UX designer, and that is all we know. Um, there are also some, um, a few screens from the presentation. You should still be able to follow along. Uh, just get something to write with and something to write on, or you can do it digitally if you like. Um, I don't know if there are any more kits in the back, but um, cool. So here's what we're going to do. I want you 
to, if you're on a team, you can work in teams. Um, I want you to think about your product. I want you to think about whatever it is that you're working on right now. It could be a new feature for a product, could be a brand new product, could be jobs for pets. You can invalidate the hell out of that if you want. Um, I want you to go through and I want you to write down as many assumptions about your product as you can. Here's the template. For product to succeed, it is necessary that pets can work. All right? For product to succeed, it is necessary that people have multiple devices where they want to share stuff. Write one down per sticky note. I'm going to give you a little time to do this. I'm going to give you, I've got a clock right here. I'm going to give you two minutes to do it. Think about your product. Again, if you're here with teammates, do this writing part alone, but you're going to share it with them later. Um, write down as many assumptions as you can in those two minutes. OK? I'll stand up here and be quiet. When you are done, you are going to go through and you're going to categorize your assumptions. I want you to determine if each of those assumptions is a problem assumption, a solution assumption, or an implementation assumption. Hopefully, you're going to have you know, one or two of each. Um, go ahead and write P, S, or I on each of those sticky notes. It'll help you later when you go back and try to decipher what, what you were thinking about. Um, sometimes you can have trouble figuring out if it's a problem assumption or a solution assumption. Um, or Implementation is generally pretty obvious. Uh, if you are having trouble, it may be that it's actually about both or that you've conflated the two. So you really want to separate it out. If it's about the user and the problem that you're solving, it's a P. If it's about how you're solving it, if you're talking about you know, features or like a, a detail of it, that's going to be a solution. And if you're talking about the actual, like, what, what do I have to do? You know, like, do I have to, do I have to solve a problem? That's generally implementation. Okay, so write those down. This is actually also a very nice um, little exercise that you can do with these. You can divide them into a will-kill pile and a will-not-kill pile. The will-kill pile are things that will literally kill your product. Like, if this isn't true, your product goes down the drain, right? If pets can't work, jobs for pets is dead in the water, all right? Now, we've only written down a few assumptions, but even the number that we've written down, you probably can't validate all of them or even try to invalidate all of them, it would take forever and it'd be silly. So we can assume things, like, you know, we're going to assume a few things, right? Like people use the internet. Except, shit, sometimes you can't, right? Because what if you're making a mobile app that's going to be used in national parks? Maybe you're going to have to validate whether or not people will actually have access to the internet. So. What I need you to do is I need you to identify the characteristics of something that makes it a risky assumption for you. Because as I just pointed out, something can be a risky assumption for your product, and it can be a totally assumable, it can be a totally assumable assumption for somebody else. Right? So in your kits, again, you will have this diagram. All right? When we say something is risky, we are talking about two separate factors. We are talking about how likely it is to happen, and we are talking about how bad it's going to be when it does, right? Because there are things that are extremely unlikely to happen, but if they do happen, they are very, very, very bad. They are devastating. They could kill someone, right? Not very likely, but really bad. And then there are other things that 
you know, whatever, might cause an angry phone call to your company, but it could happen to a lot of people, right? That can be risky too, especially if you're the one who has to answer the phone. So generally I take this grid, I put my various assumptions onto it, and I use it to help me sort out in my mind which of these hypotheses is the one that, what is the thing that I need to look at first? What is my riskiest assumption? All right, so take a look at through your stickies and try to figure out what goes in the toppest, rightest corner of this grid, because that is the thing that you are going to want to validate first. And while you're figuring out what your riskiest assumption is, here is something important to remember. The one thing that you want to do, the one thing that's super fun, right? Building something, writing code. That's the best part, right? It's where you get to see your dream come to life. You get to envision things. It's super fun. Um, yeah, that's never your riskiest assumption. Whether or not you can build something is never the thing that you need to de-risk. You can build a website, right? So if that's one of your assumptions, get rid of it. One exception to that rule, um, if your name is Elon Musk, and no, um, if you build rocket ships or magical electric cars, this advice does not apply to you. The riskiest assumption for you from the very beginning is whether or not you can actually build a rocket ship. Can you launch something into space before going broke? Whether or not you can sell it is really kind of a smaller thing, right? But even if you are Elon, and again, you are not, even your riskiest assumption is going to change over your product's lifespan. For example, once you actually have figured out that you can build a magical, indestructible car, right, your riskiest assumption may be whether you can sell that car for 100,000 bucks. And again, I want you to think back before Tesla to when, you know, electric cars were mostly wanted by hippies who frankly didn't have 100 grand to drop on something that looks like, an, looks like a Lotus and drives like an iPad. So at some point, whether or not you can sell the thing is a pretty big part of the risk. And then, when you actually figured out that you can sell it, suddenly, your riskiest assumption is, oh my god, can I make enough of these? Can I make them fast enough? Can I build them and get them out to people for the right amount of money? The point here is that sometimes your riskiest assumption is about the problem you're solving, sometimes it's about the solution, and sometimes it's about the implementation, and I don't know what it is for you. That is for you to figure out. And that is for you to figure out constantly because it can change day by day. So now that you've identified your riskiest, your riskiest assumption, I want you to turn into a hypothesis statement. A hypothesis statement should contain what you believe and how you will know if you are right. Here is a nice template that was stolen entirely from the adorable, fluffy Janice Frazier. That is how she insists I refer to her. Um, in your kits, you should have the following three slides that will help you turn your assumption into a hypothesis statement. So let me give you an example. We believe that there is a large set of pet owners who have a need for offsetting the cost of pet ownership. We will know that we have validated this when we get 1,000 people to sign up for more information about reducing the cost of pet ownership. If you want to do the solution, here's an example. We believe that people like 
pet owners will agree to rent their pets to other people for money. We will know we have validated this when we get to 1,000 people to make profiles of their pets and offer them for hire. And if you want to do an implementation example, here we go. We believe that our company can, uh, can help pets to do valuable work. We will know that we have validated this when we've successfully gotten jobs for 100 pets with other people and had 80% of those people say they were satisfied with the experience. Try it. Pick your riskiest assumption, write down what you believe, write down how you'll know you're right. One minute. Of course, what you have in front of you, if you've managed to write it down in that amount of time, and if you didn't, then you will later, promise me. What you have there is a falsifiable statement which means you should get out there and try to falsify it. The goal is to design a way to decrease the risk that you're building on top of an abandoned mine shaft. You have to be open to the idea that you might be entirely wrong and you might have to start over. That is the hardest part about this. You could be wrong and you have to believe you have to design your test in a way that you will believe that that is true if those are the results. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to go through a bunch of examples of a bunch of the different types of tests that you can run, and I'll tell you why. Um, I did that last year right here. So what I want you to do, if you're interested in figuring out a way that you could test your particular assumption, your hypothesis, um, go back, search for my name, Laura Klein, Lean Startup Conference 2013 on YouTube, and you will see me explaining several different ways of testing assumptions in a fair amount of detail. I talk about dashboards, audience building, concierge, Wizard of Oz, fake doors, and selling. And you can think of each of those as a minimum viable product with the goal just to test a different type of assumption. Um, I also talk about what sorts of assumption uh, this will be useful for validating in just a second. But before I do that, I want to head off a really important question that I get literally at every single talk I ever give about this stuff. I know it starts to sound a little bit like science. It's got assumptions, we've got hypotheses, and validation, and invalidation, and falsifiable stuff, and da-da-da. Yeah, we're not actually, this isn't actually science. I mean, there's some science to it, but it's not really science. We are not trying, to, most of us, sorry, unless you are, most of us are not trying to get FDA approval. Right? We do not need to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are 100% right. In fact, none of the tests, none of the methods for testing that I give you in that talk are 100% reliable. Nothing can tell you 100% that you are right. Nothing can truly validate any of these hypotheses. What they can do is they can significantly lower the chance that you are wrong. And that is incredibly important. So once you've watched the video from last year's talk, which you're all promising me that you will do now, um, you can use this handy chart to decide how to test your hypothesis statement. So for example, if you have a problem hypothesis or a problem assumption, you could use a landing page or audience building or concierge would be great for that or selling. All these are great ways to validate whether or not people have the problem that you assume they have, right? But find the method that works best for you and that you will believe and that you think truly lowers the risk that your riskiest assumption is just a delusion. 
So, thank you for listening to me. Um, if you have any questions, please let me know. I think we've got about nine minutes for questions. Uh, also, I answer all of the emails that I receive, so, um, you know, eventually. Uh, so I'm happy to actually answer questions about your individual assumptions. Like, if you don't know if something's a, a PS or an I, write to me, ask me, we can talk about it. Um, if you enjoyed the talk, you will enjoy my book, UX for Lean Startups. It makes a lovely last-minute holiday gift for all of the entrepreneurs on your list. And uh, thank you again. Also, those, those Sharpies and sticky notes, those are yours. All right, got some questions? Um, so again, if you'll take a look at that bit.ly link and put your questions in there, they are coming straight up to my computer so I can um, read them out and ask Laura. Um, one of the big questions that we got and one that I was thinking about for myself was how do you pick those numbers in the quantitative? You're like, when I get to 1,000 people, how, where does 1,000 people come from? There are two, there are two answers to this. Um, so there's a great book called Lean Analytics that um, you should read. And it talks in depth about how to pick those numbers, right? Um, the truth is that often we have to make a guess and we have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is, this is what I'm predicting, this is what I think will happen. I think the real answer is that as your company gets bigger and as you do this more and more and more often, um, you'll just be able to predict a little bit better what you'll see. But one of the things that you have to think about is you have to think about not just how many people do I think I could get to you know, sign up for my service, but how many, like what percentage of people coming in and signing up would I need in order to make this a viable business, right? If I can sort of Estimate, if I can, and this is when you get into some of the accounting stuff, if I can estimate that it's probably going to cost me 10 bucks to find a new person to bring in, I have to make some educated guesses about what my lifetime value is of that person, and I have to figure out, okay, well, what percentage of the people coming in do I actually need to convert in order to eventually make a profit? And that math gets tough. And that's why you should read the book, Lean Analytics, because they go into, like I said, much more detail than, than I'm going to go into right now. But um, so I guess the short answer is math and guessing. <laughs> math and guessing. Sure. Science and not science, si like you said sci before. Science and art. Yes, that was helpful. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Uh, <laughs> um, so I had one question here. You know, you started talking about once you how your, your riskiest assumption mm -hmm. is kind of a moving target. Mm -hmm. Once you validate something, you kind of have to move on mm -hmm. to the next thing. So you took us through this really useful exercise, and I was wondering, once you validate your riskiest assumption, do you do that exercise again every time? So, okay, so I make this mistake all the time, and I think I make it when I'm giving talks and I need to work on that. Um, you're not actually going to validate it. Like you're going to make it. You're going to de-risk it. You are going to make it less likely that it is true. Or you are going to find out how likely it is to be true. And if you're like, well, I'm now X percent more certain that this is true. Suddenly, that's not my riskiest assumption anymore. So something else then becomes my riskiest assumption. 
and then I do that exercise on the next thing. I figure out, okay, oh, shoot, okay, well, this is, this is still somewhat risky. Everything's risky, right? Life is, nothing's guaranteed, right? It's all crapshoot. But we've taken this thing and we've said, well, it was really risky, and now we think it's, now we're, we're pretty sure it's, it's good. Like, we're pretty sure this is, we're not, we're pretty sure that there isn't an abandoned mine anywhere under the house. Okay, what's the next thing, right? Oh, we should probably check to make sure that, like, you know, there aren't gas lines under the, the place where we want to build, right? Let's de-risk that. So you do keep doing this exercise, but you do it with whatever the next riskiest thing is until you're kind of feeling comfortable. And also, you're, meanwhile, you're building things and shipping them and getting feedback from people. Right. Great. Yeah. Um, and so this next question is a, a bit further afield from this basic uh, targeting your assumptions question, but I know is one that is relevant for probably everyone and that you also have talked about many times. How do you convince others in your company that they are relying on unverified assumptions that could very well be wrong? Oh, I get some variation. Did you do this on, <laughs> on purpose because you know that I get this, like some variation of that question and literally I did. I actually I, yeah. do know that she gets you, this question I do. a lot. I get this and question every got a great answer. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I get it because it's really important, and apparently this is a huge problem um, because I, I guess like most of the world doesn't know about this stuff yet. Um, again, the answer is that most, most rational people, I like to think, will respond to data and will respond to proof. So if you can run some of these validation or invalidation tests if you want, and you can start to show, yeah, this thing that you think is true, like we've got evidence that it's not true. Suddenly it becomes less about, well, I think and well, you think, which just turns into whoever gets paid the most making the decision, whoever yells the loudest, which I always win, but um, it's really not the best way to, to win an argument. Um, suddenly it moves out of, well, I think, you think, into, no, 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 look, we, we have evidence. Like, look, look, watch these users. Look at what they're doing. Look at, look at the metrics. If you work at a company where people are not convinced by things like listening to users and looking at what users actually do in real life, you need to quit and you need to find someplace better to work. You can only spend so much of your life convincing other people that truth is truth. Great. Um, and this, I think, is going to be our last question. Um, if you already have a business and you already have some analytics, mm -hmm. um, can you use those to validate the assumptions that you have? Or are you always trying to create something new to measure? No, absolutely. If you have a business, you absolutely can use all kinds of analytics to, to validate the assumptions that you're making. Um, in fact, when you already have a product, you're in a much better position because you have a lot more things you can try. You know, some of the things um, on that, if you, if you watch the, the thing from last year, I talk a lot about the different kinds of testing that you can do, and some things like, you know, like A-B testing or fake doors, like those don't work unless you already have a product and a very specific type of product, right? So um, you actually have more leeway to test different things when you have a real product. Um, the important thing is to knowingly state what your assumptions are, get them written down, because 
everybody's opinion about what they thought changes as soon as they have data. Um, so figure out what your assumptions are, write them down, and then figure out a way to invalidate them if possible. Right. Again, uh, sorry, oh, the, my email is gone from there. It's laura at usersno.com. Um, again, any questions about this? I swear I will read it and answer it. Um, and I would love to help you all. Thanks. Thanks.